If you're a parent of younger children, the annual conversation has probably already started. When is Christmas coming? Is Christmas here yet? How many sleeps until Christmas? When is Christmas going to get here? Just the other day, I was in the car with Pierce and he was asking me, Dad, is Christmas this weekend? I said, no. He said, next weekend? No, not next weekend either. The weekend after that? No, it's not the weekend after that either, but it'll be here soon. Not soon enough. When is Christmas coming? It is that annual conversation, isn't it? When is Christmas going to get here? When is Christmas coming? We look forward to that day when Christmas finally arrives. This is the Advent season. It's this time of the year when our culture stops and we prepare for Christmas and we ask the question, when is Christmas coming? And we want the best Christmas. And so we take this time to prepare by finding the very best gifts and throwing the very best parties and making sure our house is decorated just great and making the very best food, the very best Christmas treats. We listen to the best Christmas music, going to the best play. We want Christmas to be just perfect. And that longing for the perfect Christmas, well, it's, it's an echo of this ache that we have, this yearning for Christ to accomplish in his second coming what he inaugurated in his first. And so while the world is asking and the culture is asking, when is Christmas coming? Well, this Christmas season, we, the church, we're going to be asking a very different question. Where is Christmas going? See, that's the question. The world is asking, when is Christmas coming? And we're asking, where is Christmas going? John, he helps answer some of those questions for us through the book of Revelation. And so during this exciting new Christmas series, Together for Christmas, we're going to the book of Revelation to get some of those answers. This morning, we're beginning in Revelation chapter 4. Let's go ahead, check it out together. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was as it were this sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes are all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. You know, there was a time not too long ago when the book of Revelation was a very hot topic. It seemed like every month a new book about the book of Revelation was being released. And we would study and look, okay, what does this mean for our time and what's happening? And with all of this, there's almost an antichrist of the week because we'd point, we'd look, and we'd see, hey, this person, this leader's doing this or this leader's doing that. And if you do the math just right, you get 666. And so there was this time of anticipation and and almost fear. And so people were taught a lot about what everything meant. And if the European Union is adding another nation or what does this mean? How does this play out in the grand scheme of things? People were experts on the experts and what the experts had to say about the book of Revelation. Problem was, not a lot of people were reading the actual book. They read books about the book, but not the book. (laughs) Ah, but when you read the book, when you take time just to sit down and read the book of Revelation, and then you realize that, that this revelation, well, it was given to a pastor, a pastor who would become a bishop of seven churches, the seven churches that are most likely around Ephesus mentioned in the book of Revelation. Yes, John was a pastor. He was a pastor who was both popular and powerful, so popular and powerful that Rome didn't know what to do with him. I mean, if John simply would have been powerful and not popular, Rome probably would have had him executed. If he would have simply been popular but not powerful, they likely would have simply ignored him. But since he was popular and powerful, well, they didn't know quite how to handle him. They didn't know quite what to do with that. Make no mistake, Rome had killed plenty of Christian leaders in the church by this time. I mean, Paul and Peter, they had both been killed. In fact, all of the disciples had been killed. John was the only living remaining disciple of the original 12. And Rome had no problem killing, old, killing older leaders. They had done that. And so what are they going to do with him? How could they hurt John the most and at the same time not make him a martyr to all these people who beloved him and who are following him? And how do you hurt a pastor the most? (laughs) Well, you exile him off away from the church. You, You remove him from people so that when he preaches, there is no one to hear the message. That when he receives a revelation, there is no one to share it with. And so this is what they do. They exile John off to a small piece of rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea simply to be forgotten about. John tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that it was the Lord's day and that he was worshiping because it was the Lord's day. And so he's worshiping. What did that worship look like? I mean, how do you worship alone? Was he singing? Was he just quoting scripture from memory? What did that worship service look like? 
We don't really know, but we do know what happened. Because as he is worshiping, the Lord shows up and all of a sudden John is ushered into this whole new dimension of worship as this revelation of the triune God is delivered to John and he sees God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all worthy of all of our worship, of all of our praise, of all glory. And so knowing this, seeing this, there's then these revelations that John writes to the seven churches around Ephesus, these seven churches of Revelation. You may have heard of some of them. There's the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and Philadelphia and Pergamum and Sardis and Laodicea and just about all of these churches. Well, they've forgotten something. They've all kind of slacked off in some way only Philadelphia is remaining faithful and so John writes and he says hey you've forgotten this you've forgotten your first love you've forgotten how to love you've forgotten true doctrine and you're holding on latching on to false teaching and it's causing this harm it's causing this distress and so he's talking about all these different issues that the churches must address they're told what they must do and the threat of what would happen if they don't. But don't miss this. These letters, these sermons to these seven churches, they're not just for those seven churches. See, they're for all churches of all times because any church, I mean, you step back and you look at the life and ministry of any church and you can find it represented in these seven churches. You're either the church of Philadelphia, strong and faithful, no matter how small you might be or how large. Or you're dealing with something, you've forgotten something, there's a course correction that must take place. You can find the life and ministry of any church in these seven churches. More than that, you can find yourself in any of these churches. Because after all, a church is just made up of people anyway. We are the building blocks of the church. And so we can look at our own lives and we can say, hey, this is what I've forgotten. Or this is where I'm at. This is what I need to do. This is the course correction that I must take. You understand these sermons to these seven churches. This is the word of the Lord to every church, to every believer at every time and in every place. And then, well, the sermons end. These sermons to the churches ends. And so now what? I mean, right, if you're there and you, you've just heard this letter being read to you and now you've made it to this point, this revelation's been shared with you and John is telling you what he's experienced, this revelation from the Lord. And now, hey, here, as one of these seven churches, here's what you must do. Here's, here's the correction that you must take. I mean, seven's a good number. Not only have he has he by this time addressed all the churches we've also seen that he's preached all the, all the sermons. <laughs> so now what? <laughs> but the thing is, he's just getting started. Why? Because there's a future. There's a future. You know, it's one thing to show up and to be able to tell somebody the situation they're in. To show up and say, hey, friend, here's what's going on. I can see this mess you're in. This, you got this situation going on. Here's your problem. Here's your distress. And we come and we can tell them the problem. We can tell them the mess they're in. And then we can just walk away and leave them in their 
distress. Yeah, we might sympathize with the person, but understand this, sympathy is overrated. You know, I mean, somebody's feeling bad and somebody else shows up and they say, hey, friend, I know how you feel. Well, that's great. And they get two people feeling bad. Sympathy's overrated. It might feel good in the moment, but oftentimes you need something more. The churches, they needed something more. John, he needed something more. You and I, we need something more. We need more than sympathy. And so in chapter 4, the Spirit comes to John and says, Get up. Come here. I will show you what must happen. Not what we hope will happen or what we pray will happen or what might happen. No, I will show you what must happen. Why must it happen? Because this is the ultimate reality. John looks up and he sees the throne, this reality that defines all reality, the ultimate statement on everything, the ultimate definer of meaning and life. And he sees the throne of heaven and all of the regalia that surrounds it. And who is on the throne? It's not Caesar. It's not Caesar. I understand the seven churches, they walk around just in their day-to-day -day life. Everywhere they're going, they're seeing statues of Caesar because Caesar says he's God. John, he's exiled off to the island of Patmos ultimately because Caesar claimed to be God. Did you know that the early Christians, they were accused of being atheists? A atheism, that, that was the charge. Why? Because we did not believe that Caesar was God. We, we would not say that Caesar is Lord. We would not bow our knee to him. The Christian profession of faith is that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. And for that, we were accused of being atheists. And so, yeah, these churches, they walked by these statues. They heard the threats, the threats of, hey, I'm going to take everything you have away from you. I'm going to take you away from your family. We're going to throw you in jail. We're going to kill you. They heard the threats and they knew they, these weren't empty threats because they had seen this happen all too many times. And now John steps up and he sees the throne and he gets out his quill and he says to the churches, it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. Jesus is on the throne. The one crucified now reigns. The one raised from the dead. He's the one worthy of all glory and honor and praise. It's not Caesar. It's Jesus who's on the throne. And so the whole world worships. The throne. The throne of Jesus, it is that vortex that pulls all of history to it and pushes all of the future from it. You understand that? That the throne of Jesus, it pulls all of history to it and it pushes the rest of eternity from it. And so around this throne, there's these four creatures, the same creatures that Ezekiel saw in his vision. These are the most powerful and regal of creatures. Why? Because they communicate the majesty of God's throne. Because all of creation will gather around this throne to praise the one who created them. 
and covered with eyes, these creatures, the Spirit of God, he misses nothing. He sees everything, knows everything, and the whole world is there. At long last, it truly is joy to the world. There are 24 elders there surrounding the throne on their thrones. These 24 elders, they represent all believers of all time. You have the 12 tribes of Israel representing all of Israel and all of the Old Testament believers that God would keep his promise to Abraham. Then you have the 12 disciples representing the New Testament believers and all the Gentile world, just showing that, yes, what God did promise to Abraham, that, hey, I'm going to build a mighty nation out of you, a mighty people, and from you and your descendants, all people on earth will be blessed. And so this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And so the entire world gathers around this throne that has pulled everything to it and will push all of the future from it. And they begin to worship. And they do that by taking off their crowns and tossing them at the feet of Jesus. Now, Understand, this is what conquered kings did. If another king's army had come into your country and you were a king and they overran your country and they took over and they, they conquered you, then there was this great celebration, this fantastic ceremony where you, the defeated king, would come in front of the conquering king and you would kneel down before the conquering king and you would take off your crown. And you would put it at his feet as his people would celebrate and cheer that this king has been conquered and their king is the conquering king. It was an ultimate act of humiliation, an ultimate act of defeat. But here, with the whole believing world before Jesus Christ on his throne, it's here, it's the ultimate act of worship. When we take off our crowns, it's the ultimate act of worship. But do you remember what happened when Jesus took off his crown? Yeah, when Jesus took off his crown, he left the comforts and the splendor and the majesty of heaven. To be born a baby in the most humble of ways here on earth. He didn't walk our earth as a king and as... He walked our earth as a homeless man. He ate our food. He understood our pain. He felt our anguish. He got our anger. He was able to sympathize with us. But it wasn't enough just to sympathize with us. We needed God to do more than simply sympathize with us. We needed much more because our plight was so grave. And so Jesus, when he took off his throne, he did more than sympathize. He died on the cross. He paid for our debt. He took our punishment and he rose Again, yes, God did more than sympathize for us. And so as an ultimate act of worship, we take off our crowns, we throw them at his feet, acknowledging that they were never really our crowns to begin with. They are his and Jesus deserves no less than our ultimate worship. And so because of this, Paul wrote that Christ was given a name that is above every name and that the name of Jesus 
every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you understand that Christmas, it's about far more than a baby being born in a manger. But there's something about a baby, isn't there, that just draws people in. There's something about a baby that is so approachable that makes you kind of want to lean in and and look and see this precious new life. It causes you to just, ooh, and oh, there's something special about a baby. And so the world stops as Mary holds her baby and leans in and looks and we want to come and we want to see who is this baby that's been born lying in a manger. And so each year we stop and we lean in and we look. But make no mistake at who you're looking at and who's looking back at you. Because who's looking back at you is not Jesus, baby Jesus, meek and mild. It's Jesus on the throne, the lover of your soul, the giver of life, and at the same time, the destroyer of darkness, Jesus. See, God has not given up on his world. He sent Jesus to rightly claim what is his. He's not giving up. He's claiming his stake on the world. He's saying the world and you and I, we belong to him. We belong to him. And so Jesus came for us, not to sympathize for us, but to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Why? (laughs) Because he wants us to be there. He wants us to be at this ultimate celebration. You know, Christmas, it is that time of year where we have these parties and we have these celebrations. It is a time of celebrating. And there's something about the celebrations, isn't there, where you just want everyone there. Because it's not enough to simply celebrate alone. Good news has to get out. You want all your loved ones around the table to, to sing, to talk, to eat, to celebrate. And so Jesus, he did more than simply sympathize with us. He paid our debt. He rose from the dead so that he could invite us to this great celebration, this this unbelievable celebration where we'll be standing beside the sea of glass and we'll be holding his face, the face of one so perfect that he looks almost like Jasper or Carnelian, that his throne is so regal and around it this rainbow and emeralds. It's just this incredible sight. And at this celebration, there's lightning and thunder and it's just this grand show. And we'll be there to take off our crowns, to kneel at his feet, to throw them at his feet and to say and sing, holy, 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 Lord, you're the only one who's worthy. Oh, it'll be a great celebration as we all celebrate together. So as you celebrate this Christmas, know that your celebrations now, they're an echo of the celebration that is coming. Because you see, it's not so much about when will Christmas get here, but where is Christmas going? Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christmas is going to this place of ultimate celebration where all believers of all times will gather at your feet in complete unity and solidarity, throwing our crowns off, acknowledging that you are and always have been and always will be Lord the one and only true Lord. 
Help us to celebrate that reality well this season. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.